Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Amber Petty knew she wanted to act when she was three years old, and she did. She attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, taught musical improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade, and starred in an off-Broadway show based on the Fifty Shades books. She also discovered that the life she'd imagined and the ones she was living weren't the same and shifted into writing. These days, she still writes, but she also helps ordinary people build confidence about singing at singadifferenttune.com. I'm thrilled that she's my guest today. We talked about the realities of life as an actor, dealing with rejection, and whether that's harder as an actor or a writer, how overnight success really works, why singing is such a vulnerable act, and more. She also gave us some tips on dealing with stage fright. I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Amber Petty. Thank you so much for doing this, because I'm psyched. Good. Let's see, where should we start? Yeah, you, you do all sorts of cool music things, and I know that's not all you've ever done. So, why don't why don't we kind of start at the beginning? Like, what did you start out doing, and how did you start there? And let's sure. go from there. Totally. <laughs> I started out. Um, yeah, I started out as an actress. So, like when I was six, I was in a neighborhood play, and I ever since then wanted to be a actor or a singer. I also wanted to be a singer when I was three. So, thankfully, musical theater existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to solve my six-year-old, you know, worries about that. You know, I was really torn at seven, whether I'd be a singer or an actor. Uh, and so, so anyway, so my whole life I was doing that kind of stuff. So I did singing and musical theater and dancing, not as a real dancer, but as a person who can learn a box step for the music man. And then, um, yeah, so then I went to New York when I was 17 and I went to acting school there. Sweet. And I ended up um, teaching voice and speech at the acting school I went to, which isn't just singing, but is also speaking and supporting your voice and, um, mm-hmm. you know, diction and all that stuff. So I did that stuff my whole life and I was the lead in an off-Broadway show and a national tour. And all that stuff was very exciting, but everything in between acting is the opposite of exciting. It's, you know, horrible. Mm -hmm. And there just came a point where I couldn't continue to have to be available to wait around for auditions and things to pop up out of the blue um, and not even get a chance to give myself some kind of job or whatever in the meantime that's in any way meaningful because you have to drop everything. Um, So I started um, with writing and just started writing articles online. And so now kind of what I'm doing is split between um, teaching voice lessons and writing more essays and columns and and features for different online outlets. Well, that keeps you busy. Sure. Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm never at a lack for multiple jobs to have. Um, I've probably had three jobs at once, at least since I was 18. Wow. Maybe 18 and a half. <laughs> but even when I was the lead in an off-Broadway show in New York, we did eight shows a week mm-hmm. and I still had to work. I still had to keep a bartending job that was one day a week and keep an improv teaching job because it wasn't enough money, just right. the show on its own. And you never know when it's going to close. So right. I've Oof. consistently... <laughs> <laughs> had very short, short times, but I was on tour. I guess I wasn't. Oh, but I still did voiceover. Even when I was touring the country, I still did another job. So, wow. Very accustomed to that. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and I'm just, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, people think that acting is this glamorous job. I mean, most people, if you walked up to them and said, I'm the lead in an off-Broadway show, they'd be yeah. like, oh my God, you know, and they'd start freaking out. But, you know, they they don't get that you can't pay the bills on it, especially in New York, but probably anywhere. And, you know, you, you've got to just keep hustling to just to keep a roof over your head. Yeah. I think that that's the biggest thing. Cause it's like, you could paint my 
acting career in one way that sounds really awesome or in another way that sounds exceptionally faily <laughs> for <laughs> lack of a better word. You know, it's like just how you paint it. But like, yeah, I've done some stuff that sounds great. And it's not to say I didn't enjoy doing the show off Broadway, but mm -hmm. there's a different reality when you are like doing what you love and you still have to work constantly just to have a kind of a savings. That's not the dream that I had as a child. No. <laughs> And so like what I made literally, so we were off Broadway and um, we made the same as a union contract. And so to be the lead in a show or was on stage almost the whole time, I got after taxes $440 a week. And that was a show that was in Times Square. Now, if I was on Broadway, it would be more, but even Broadway salaries are going down. So there's some where people are on Broadway for $900 a week. That's before oh. taxes oh. or agents. And that's Sometimes living in New York like, or near it. And that's, and that's yeah. So um, I don't know. That is a reality of the acting world as you do also kind of think, um, you know, like, oh, this person, well, they did like bit parts on all these shows. Like they're doing great. And I'm sure they are. But also there's, it takes so much nowadays to get to a point where you aren't constantly wondering when you'll work again. Mm -hmm. And that becomes something that, for me was just like too hard to deal with. And when you can't even yeah. like cut your hair without it being a $500 investment in new headshots, oh, it just yeah. that gets old. <laughs> it just gets really old. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much uncertainty in that whole world. And if you're, you know, not everybody's made to handle that kind of uncertainty. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what are, it comes down to. Yeah. Even if you are, I think after a while, there's a limit. Yeah. And I, I'm not trying to talk anybody out of being an actor or whatever. Cause like you couldn't have talked me out of it, but mm -hmm. I kind of thought like, well, yeah, if I don't ever make that much money, that's not that big of a deal, but I didn't expect it's like, you still have to, what do you still have to work other jobs and you're doing the thing you like, and you're still not making money and you might not work again in what you actually like for a year. Mm -hmm. That was a reality that I was not prepared for. <laughs> yeah. So, I would imagine most people aren't really prepared for that. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to know that if it's something you'd get, make you go crazy or be totally fine with. Right. Until you do it, you know? So for everybody out there. <laughs> Do whatever you wish to do, but no, it's very unstable. Yeah. So, so you live in California now. Yeah. Did you grow up in California or? No, I grew up in Washington state. Oh, okay. Um, kind of near Tacoma. And yeah, so I grew up out there and then I went to New York when I was 17. And then I moved here to LA about four years ago, almost. Okay. Um, yeah. So what was it like for you to go to school in New York after you'd grown up in Washington? Well, it's funny because going to school, going to New York was such an easy transition. I mean, it was just like, really? hey, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't homesick. I wasn't freaked out. I mean, there were a couple tiny moments, um, like the first week of class, we had to rehearse a scene and I got off the subway in um, Bushwick, which was, wasn't super great at the time, going to this guy's house in my class where I just realized like, oh, just going to a stranger's house while all these rats run around the garbage by my feet. Like this is a kind of a weird day, but yeah. <laughs> but overall going to New York was like so easy for me. It felt so natural. And I really didn't, I mean, there were adjustments, of course, but it didn't feel super hard. But then I moved when I was 30 from New York to LA. And I mean, I might as well move to the moon. Like was, <laughs> That was insanely hard. <laughs> so, so yeah, I just lucked out, I guess, with New York. That's really interesting that I wouldn't expect. Well, I guess I sort of would. You know, in New York, everybody walks everywhere. In LA, nobody walks anywhere. You know, in the you think of of you know New York and LA as the big acting towns, and yet they are pretty culturally different. They are culturally 
absolutely different. And a lot of the cliches about in the broad strokes, the cliches of New York and LA are very true. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's nuance underneath all of that, you know? Um, but culturally it is massively, it just felt so massively different to me um, because people are like laid back in a way that you're not used to. And mm-hmm. people are um, like people connect with you in a different way where um because in New York, I guess you just get used to most, mostly people are like, just get out of my way, please. And then like, <laughs> if there's trouble or something, people kind of band together and help each mm-hmm. other out. So everything is like out of necessity in New York. So things are kind of more to the point, whereas you get these, I don't know, just so many people are, you seem like, is nobody, is nobody going anywhere doing it? Like, how are you going to the beach today? How are you just like, oh, I'm actually just going to like take my van and go live in it for a week. I mean, you like meet not crazy people that are like that here Mm -hmm. because like they just go with the flow of things and that's a change. And just the difference between the TV industry and the theater industry, you know, are very different. And um, yeah, there's just something about the overall thing. I mean, like people, grocery clerks will like talk to you as they're checking out your groceries, that was totally well. I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, that doesn't it took happen. A long time to just be like to stop going. Like, just put the shit in the bag. Like, get out of here. <laughs> what are we doing? I have nowhere to go. Uh, maybe it's nice to talk to a person. So, yeah, it was different, but I've it's good. Uh, I think it helped you mellow out. Mellow is good. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Some sometimes, I mean, I notice like I walk differently when I'm in New York, you know, and, and I definitely get out of my way on the sidewalk. I don't want to wait for you. And it, it is, it's just it's a cultural thing you pick up as soon as you set foot in the city. And if you don't, you're gonna get steamrolled. Oh yeah. You know, on the sidewalk right there, somebody's yeah, gonna walk right cool. over you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like what I heard about, you know, walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. It's like, stay out of the bike lane. They will run you over. You oh, know, it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so mellow, mellow is good. <laughs> yeah, it is. And there's lots of good things about LA and California. And the one thing, the stereotype that I would like to disprove, I don't know that it's <laughs> a burning question, um, but like a lot of people think the actors are really flaky and stuff in LA or like not as good. But I did all kinds of weird little shows and stuff here. And like the actors honestly were always in the small plays and theater things I did were always better in LA than they were in New York. Like I was really like not super low paying, like nothing jobs, how every person was really good and invested. I mean, there are flaky actors in LA and stuff like that. But for the most part, I thought people were very talented and dedicated in a way that was against the cliche. That is really interesting though. You know, I mean, in fairness, there were flaky people in everything and we tend to ignore that too, you know, and have flaky accountants for crying out loud. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's harder to deal with than a flaky actor. Yeah. You don't really want the flaky accountant. No, <laughs> no, no, especially at tax time. You really, really don't. <laughs> so like, what was acting school like for you? And how did you end up teaching at the school that you studied at? Yeah, so I, um, so yeah, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is a two-year school. So what really happened was I auditioned for like Juilliard and NYU and a couple other places, and I didn't get into any schools. Uh, which was a terrible surprise at the time. Sure. And then I got into the academy later and I hadn't thought about it because it was a two-year school and I wanted a degree. But Mm -hmm. I found you could, you know, finish your degree afterwards. So whatever. I went and it ended up being really fun. Um, Acting school was great for me because I was so singularly obsessed with acting. Like it was great for me to just go to an acting school. Um, And I was a very good student and very smart and stuff like that. You know, I did well in all my regular classes and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not opposed to reading or whatever, but <laughs> I was just so focused on acting. It was good for me to go to a school like that. And it was, I mean, it was so fun and great for me. And I learned a lot of good things. I mean, 
there's a lot of things they also don't teach you that they absolutely should, but I think that's true for any kind of acting mm-hmm. school. Um, and then when we did voice and speech, I hadn't really studied voice and speech in that way before. Mm-hmm. I'd done singing lessons and things like that. And I was just really fascinated by it from everything from the international phonetic alphabet to <laughs> learning the physicality of how you make every sound. You know, it was really fascinating. And I, this is like, I was alone uh, in my fascination with it because voice and speech is like the algebra of a <laughs> acting school. So most people are like, get me that H out of here. <laughs> what? <laughs> why I leaped out that word anyway so <laughs> I um but I was fascinated by it and so then I was just asking about oh like how would you teach this or whatever so I ended up getting the student teach in my uh the second year I was in the school I got to student teach or kind of shadow and then student teach a little bit one of the first year classes and then I was offered some they have a smaller like Saturday school they had. And so after that, I was able to teach there. And then after I had my regular bachelor's degree, I just started teaching at the school because I uh, wanted to have a job that was, you know, ideally I was like, I would love to have a job that's not being a waitress Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, and this is like super interesting to me. Um, So yeah, I got to teach at the school and then it paid decently, but it's also like a part-time job. So it wasn't quite the, um, yeah, it wasn't quite the bonanza of dollars that I'd thought it would be when I was (laughs) getting into it, but it was fine. You know, like it wasn't, wasn't anything crazy. Um, and it was really fun for a while. And then as I auditioned and stuff more and just got more into the regular world of acting, I also was realizing like so much of the stuff that we teach is a total waste of time. (laughs) Um, And not even just the international phonetic alphabet, which is not really that helpful, but it is teaching you something about like the basic tools of Mm -hmm. how a voice works, which I think is, you know, like that's a, that's a piece of knowledge that is helpful to you. But like telling students to start to talk with like U glides and WH sounds where you'd say like, which way do we go? And uh, like the costume must be perfect. And Tuesday, like talking like that is will get will not get you jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like people would ask me in commercial auditions if I just did Shakespeare all the time or something because my like diction was just oh, too much, you know? Yeah. And you know, I was just being stupid and it was just too much and it's there's no almost no parts where talking like that is uh applicable. And so to focus so much on that kind of stuff just eventually felt like I'm wasting people's time in a way. Mm-hmm. And then also it became less flexible or it's just not a super flexible job. And so I ended up leaving. So I'm always very interested in it and I'm very glad I got to teach it. And it was a great time. And it's not, it's not even the school's fault or like that was a bad right. school, like not at all. I think it seems like every acting school I ever hear of just sticks to some of these old school things mm-hmm. and neglects so much of the business world <laughs> that's and I'm just the business part of it is eighty five percent of <laughs> what actually matters so um so yeah, so that's why I ended up leaving and then I taught improv at u c b because I had been doing improv there, yeah, so. One teaching gig to another. It's interesting, though, when you say that, you know, the business side is what you didn't get because I did my MFA in creative writing and it's kind of the same. There was my first residency, there was a workshop that was about, you know, agents and publishers. And we were all really, really encouraged to go. And I was just like, I can barely even keep myself from running, screaming out the door going, what on God's earth have I got myself into? And you want me to think about this? And I didn't go. And, you know, and they, cause they kept saying it probably won't be back before you graduate. So you should Ugh. go now. Um, but, but, and that was really it. So when I met yeah. with an agent who actually lives nearby, I met her at my gym. So, you know, oh. literally by accident, right after I finished, you know, and she said, did they teach you anything about how to find an agent, how to find a publisher? I was like, 
well, you know, Matthew Quick came back and did a workshop and I went to that and he talked about his experience and gave us lists of stuff to think about. But that was really it. And and she was shaking her head saying the same thing. Yeah. She's like, this is the stuff you actually really need to know. And they're not teaching it. And I don't think they even really think about it. You know, they see it as our job is to teach you how to write. And I think that's probably what the acting schools do. We're here to teach you how to act. And then you're on your own. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really occur to them that you might need help figuring out what to do between their door and an audition or an agent or whatever. And it's really fascinating that so many of these schools for acting, at least, are still really focused mm-hmm. on theater acting. And again, like I went to New York, like I I would have chosen a theater thing anyway, you know, but by default, most of these places go for theater acting. And again, it's not that theater acting and, and TV acting are totally different, but the difference in how they work is radically different. I mean, because even just the fact that like you need to show up and you need to show up on set and do your one line and be able to do it in two takes and not mess up anybody else's thing and nobody cares about you or wants to help you and like thousands of dollars are focused mm-hmm. on you just not succeeding, not being miserable. And that's like a totally different yeah. kind of pressure or how you have to just you know, you're going to be somebody on Law & Order who just like walks in and does a crying monologue about their baby that got murdered. You know, that's, you get no leads and how big is too big or not. You like, you don't discuss any of even that part of acting, which is funny. And there's such a reliance on like classical stuff, which I'm sorry. It's Mm -hmm. like, you don't do. (laughs) Most people don't perform that it doesn't get done. And like, that's not how you can survive um, monetarily. So it's, it is fascinating to me that these schools do, it's, it's like, it's so antithetical to them that they will admit that it is a commercial industry, but they have to hide, you know, in art. Whereas if somebody comes in and they're a horrible actor and they have no desire to get better, but they want to know how to get an agent, well, sure, that's a problem. But you see tons of good people that don't get the success they need because they aren't good at or don't like doing all the little yeah. networking promotional kinds of things you need to do or aren't as good as good at doing it in an audition where you have 30 seconds and all the pressure in the world to show that you're good enough so i yeah i i wish creative places would just I just wish everybody in the arts would admit that like money is also a part of things. And like, I'm kind of a jerk. Like I would like to have a lot of money. Honestly, if I'm being honest, I used to be like, I don't need a lot of money, just like a normal amount. I'm like, well, hell, if I have whatever I want, it's a great deal. Um, But obviously that's not Mm -hmm. your first concern, but like wanting to pay your bills and have insurance without being freaked out. I think is what most people want. And there are ways you could make it happen. I feel like (laughs) we just need to Mm -hmm. learn these things. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I I, I like the way that you put, you know, we're hiding in the art. Sort of like this this perfect little world that we don't want to come out of because the actual process of doing something with that art is... I don't know. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but you get the, that feeling like, oh, but if you have to make money, that's dirty somehow. You know, it's like, no, no, yeah. this, this should just be you live for your art and you don't have to do any of the rest of this. And and that is certainly not the vibe that I got in my program. You know, I think everybody gets, you uh-huh. know, yes, you need to eat preferably something that's not ramen noodles, but it, you know, it, it does. It's like, it's like we we kind of cordon off the creative stuff and we want it to be this pure thing when there's not really any pure thing anywhere ever anyway. And then that gets lost. Yeah. It's so rare that anybody just makes something great and it by magic gets discovered. Sometimes that does happen. Um, But most of the time, even with stuff that seems overnight, it's, from an audience they were building for years or because they paid for advertisements for it that you didn't know or because they crafted a story about themselves to make it more mm-hmm. sellable <laughs> or you know there's like just a lot of machinations behind all of these kind of magical success stories that we hear um and 
they're just totally false. And the problem is most creative people doing that kind of selling of yourself and promoting yourself is just like the opposite of what we want to do. (laughs) It's the last, you know, we didn't get into business and sales for a reason because Lord knows that would have been an easier, more profitable Mm -hmm. way to live, but you don't because that's not how your brain works. And yet that's a, it's just a massive piece of this. And yeah, schools and I don't know, I just feel like the general narrative of artistic life, uh, it just doesn't. Yeah. And they, you know, that. they also, cause I'm, I'm thinking about how, especially with acting, you know, acting is all about putting yourself into being someone who isn't you. But then if you go audition, it is about you. And then, so, so it's like that selling yourself in a way that you're not accustomed to cause you're busy being somebody else for a while, but it's also, you know, nobody teaches you how to handle rejection. And and that happens with with writing and dance and everything else too. I mean, like the you know Stephen King wallpapered his office, I think, with all of his rejection letters, and that just becomes so demoralizing. It happens over and over and over again. You know what that does to you too, as an artist and as a human being, is is difficult to take. And I found that in acting, at least, the rejections that what really got me was less the the total uh, rejections where it was, you didn't get that part. No, we're not having you come come back for callback. The rejection of they don't even want to see you at all. You can't even get an audition for this. And that kind of like the, um, just the neglect, Mm -hmm. uh, the neglect kind of (laughs) uh, no that you get, that like was the worst for me because it is, it's not even that someone's taking the time to say no to you. You don't exist and they don't care to know you. And that gets very hard think so. to handle. So with writing, at least, I mean, the good thing is I think acting does prepare you to be in almost any situation because you are treated like garbage so much of the time. Sometimes actors mm-hmm. are treated super great, but way most of the time you're just totally expendable and people are either neutral or mean. And people say mean things to you all the time. I mean, where you'll just be like, I said I was 30 to, an, to a manager and she just acted like I said I was one foot in the grave yeah. at 105. You know, just like it was preposterous that I could be 30 and want to be an actor and, um, you know, stuff like that, that in the normal business world, people Mm -hmm. would be sued for saying, um, or, you know, acting teachers telling you like, Oh, have you ever thought about losing weight? I mean, to tons of people, you know, just stuff you can't hear in the business world. So anyway, so coming from that, going into writing where you do get lots of rejections, um, or they don't write you back, you know, which is, fine. It still feels a thousand times nicer. (laughs) Like I've never had, and people could sometimes be mean too, but it's like, I don't know. I had a choir teacher make me cry because we weren't, you know, involved enough in our performance of your God is an awesome (laughs) God or whatever, you know, like I've been through (laughs) a lot of stupid emotions. So Going into writing weirdly feels nice, which is um, just means I have low standards. Well, but you know, you saying that, I definitely, when I started my MFA program, which was a low residency program, so it wasn't like it was, you know, weeks and weeks of cutthroat workshops where everybody was there to shred everybody else to bits, which doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense to me as an educational practice, but that's another topic. Um, but we did have small group meetings with our advisors and we would have homework for those over the course of that week. And it was so interesting to me because, it, you know, I wasn't by then, cause this was 10 years ago. So I was 35, I guess, when I started that program and I wasn't really used to having anybody critique my stuff except for a couple people that I really, really trusted. But I did very quickly yeah. get over the initial I don't know, shock isn't quite the right word, but but it is kind of a shock to your system because you're sitting there going, oh, so it's not as great as I thought it was, right? But there was one guy who was in my advising group for two semesters, I think, who was educational in and of himself because he could not Mm -hmm. take it. 
And you would sit there yeah. and you would watch and he would literally start to turn red. You could all but see the steam coming out of his ears. And there was mm-hmm. one day when after our advising group, my advisor stayed after to talk to him because she had made the point during our session about how Goddard is really non-competitive and people don't slice and, and dice other people in a workshop. And he said, oh, I've seen it happen. And I think everybody in that room, except possibly our advisor, had, you know, because we'd all watched <laughs> this, thought you mean to you and that's not what we've been doing. You know, we've been talking yeah. about places where we think your stuff could be better or where we think it's not working as well as you want it to, which is not the same as going after you personally. But he took every single piece of it absolutely personally. It was as if we had all walked up (sighs) and stabbed him in the heart with a dagger. And, you know, I think that was the moment when it crystallized for me because I heard her saying to him, it's not about you. It's about the work. It's a separate thing. You have to be able to separate these two things or you're never going to grow because nothing anybody ever says is going to go anywhere except right into a place that's going to kill you. And that's not healthy. Yeah. And and I, you know, I think it seems to me, because I haven't gone through the audition process like you have, so maybe you have a better sense it. I'm sure you have a better sense of this than I do. Like that would be a whole lot harder as an actor because it is you is is it harder to separate yourself from the work and the criticism in that context oddly enough i've found that well because also the weird thing is like when you're in school and stuff you know you do get notes and critiques all the time um and then and then when you're rehearsing you know depending on the i mean then you'll get just a wide range from a director that's a nut who just wants to, I guess, make everyone miserable to, you know, people that are too nice and they don't tell you what they actually think. And then they talk behind your back or whatever. <laughs> I've had all those things. But in those, like in rehearsal ones, the criticisms usually weren't as bad because sometimes they would be hurtful or sometimes you disagree. But it seemed to be like, I know what's in best for the show. And also like, I know when I am not doing a good job and there's like no critique the director can give me that's worse than my own. So I can feel if this is right or not. For some reason in acting, usually people, like then usually it just wasn't as bad because I kind of knew for myself, like this is bad. I do need to get better or you are wrong. I had a better sense of like, I just disagree with you or maybe this is something that just the whole show needs. So I'll do it. This totally isn't about me and I don't care. Then what gets hard in acting is then in auditions, a lot of times you don't, I mean, you don't just don't get any feedback. So when you're just hearing like, and that was for voiceover, something that was hard of like, you just get no's all the time. Um, But then you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. You can't get better. You know, you don't know if you're doing something wrong, if you just weren't right for it, if, you know, your microphone was set up badly, like you have no idea. And so then that's like its own thing. Now, writing, on the other hand, I think is much harder to take criticism because with acting, even though you're bringing yourself to it, you can still always be like, well, it wasn't Mm. a good script or the other actor wasn't that good. Or, you know, like there's still a lot of ways to kind of shift the blame out if you feel like it. Not saying that's a good thing to do, but um, but with writing, it's like I sat down and I thought this Mm -hmm. was good. I'm an idiot, you know? And when someone's like, what the hell? You know, you just, you're just like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? It's harder to, I feel like it's much harder to take that kind of criticism. And at first I had a super hard time with it um, for sure. And so I've gotten better, but I'm I'm sure I would have moments, especially if I were Mm -hmm. working on a, a novel or something I don't really do. I'm sure I would have moments like that guy (laughs) where you have to, it does really hurt you in such a way and you have to just go, okay, this it's okay. They're not even saying, they're not saying you are bad and untalented. Obviously this needs work. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. That's the hardest thing to remember that that's not what they're saying. Yeah. And now that you've put it that way, you know, I, I do agree with you because yeah, I've definitely had those moments where it's like you work really hard on something and you think it's great 
And then it turns out that it isn't. And it's just such a radical shift from where you were to what you're hearing that it's, it's tough to wrap your head around in that moment. And it's so funny because sometimes then when they say like, this is wrong, this is wrong, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, it is. I agree with all of this. What was I thinking yeah. before? I mean, I, I think of writing stuff, it is, you have to have an outside look at yes. it because there's just that point where I don't know. There's just like, I can't, I just don't possibly know anymore. I don't know up from down. Yes. <laughs> I just know that I've written it. So now let's you can help me actually see this for what it is, a nice person, and we'll go from there. And acting can be like that too, but there's still like, you can just feel, oh, this feels, you know, this mm-hmm. just doesn't feel authentic or whatever. It does feel kind of still, I don't know. To me, you can, the basics of it, you can get a like good or bad vibe. And then of course, there's going to be people that disagree mm-hmm. with that sometimes, but but me, some writing, uh, writing something, I'd be like, even I don't know. I truly don't know if this is good or bad. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what you think of it. Yeah, it's definitely easier to to assess and edit somebody else's work than it is your own. By a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> it sure is. I think it's just perspective. You know, you're you're too wrapped up in your own world with your own stuff. Yeah. And, and if you're writing something, you also have a whole like world of this thing you're writing that isn't Mm -hmm. on the page. And, and so somebody else that's not privy to that information sometimes just needs to go like, why would she do that? And you're like, you didn't get that monologue I wrote in my head. I forgot I didn't write down. (laughs) No. I mean, she says, I don't think so. Didn't come through that she had years of abuse from the past. Now she's dating a coffee barista <laughs> that didn't come through. And it's true. You know what you meant. And you don't really know what, what yeah. comes through until somebody else says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Which yeah. I think is one of the hardest things to wrap your head around because you know what you meant. And you're just sitting there going, but it's obvious. And that's probably the best piece of, you know, of criticism that I learned I, you know, really had to listen to. It's like, if somebody else doesn't get it, it doesn't matter what you think it says. It's not clear. It's not enough. You need to add more because it's not working. And that's all there is to it. No matter how much you love it, doesn't matter. It's not working. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) It's so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So now you do music. Yeah. So I teach um, voice lessons um, more aimed at people who... um, are not trying to be singers, um, mm-hmm. but just want to have more creativity and music in their life. So yeah, so I do that. And yeah, I still do articles and things. But yeah, so teaching is really fun. I mean, I just kind of wish that singing could be something that that we get to do more of recreationally. So just like you have a yeah. dance class or something like that that's just for fun. And the thing that singing is... It's so, it gives you such an emotional release, but you have to get over listening to your own voice. And that is the Mm. hard part of it because like, we're just so judgmental. And it's funny. I feel like if I see people in a Zumba class, you sometimes see people get frustrated when they like can't keep up or whatever. Mm -hmm. For the most part, I don't see anybody being like, well, that didn't look like Beyonce. So this is garbage. <laughs> Never doing it again. But with singing, we really do. It's just like, oh, that wasn't as good as the real singer. I'm horrible. And people are real um, open about saying when people are bad singers, <laughs> really quick to criticize that. And when it's a professional person, you know, whatever, you, you open yourself up to that kind of criticism and you're getting paid a lot of money to sing. So if someone wants mm-hmm. to say you're not a good singer, who cares? But people do it to just their friends and stuff all the time. I'm just like, what other thing do you just openly say, like, quit doing that. You're terrible. And people will say that to others all the time. Don't sing. Oh, my God, you're horrible. It's so weird um, and so rude, (laughs) rude to me because it's very vulnerable to sing if you're singing seventh inning stretch or, you know, singing your heart out at karaoke. It's scary in a way that a lot of other things aren't. 
Mm-hmm. So for people to be so quick to just rain on parades like that, I really don't understand. So yeah, so I just uh, teach voiceless and stuff, try to help people just be able to have fun with it. If singing something they like, I wanted to do just finding the parts about their own voice that they do like and just getting more to kind of the you know emotional core of the song because if you sing about that and speak to that in the song then the song is going to be captivating no matter what your voice sounds like mm-hmm. and that's something that anybody can do successfully um and it's fun so so yeah Yeah. And I think that we forget that not everybody has this perfect voice. In fact, some of the people that we think have perfect voices are auto-tuned to within an inch of their lives and aren't perfect either. But but I'm also thinking like a voice like Blossom Deary was not a conventional voice at all, but was absolutely perfect for what she did. Yeah. You know, and we forget that. Almost any band, uh, like the lead singer is not like a good singer, you know, they wouldn't have won their talent show in high school, but mm-hmm. they are, you know, like their voice is interesting and how they, you know, portray the emotion of the song is all interesting. And I think a lot more singers are actually like that than mm-hmm. just classically, you know, Whitney Houston type singers mm-hmm. who, of course, you know, of course, those kind of singers are wonderful. And then even they still have to practice to sound as good as they do. So like, yes, I mean, Adele's worst day is still (laughs) probably better than my best day for sure. But like, even if you heard that first time she sang something to the polished time she sang it, you know, Mm -hmm. it would be surprising the amount of difference there is. So, um, so yeah, it's a, I think singing can be a nice way to, to overcome the perfectionism that, so many women seem to have, and it's not something, some people just are so scared of singing and they never want to do it. And that Mm -hmm. is totally fine. But there's a lot of people who really want to, but have just kind of felt ashamed about it. And those are just people that I would love to work with just to find, again, the fun and kind of creative outlet. Mm -hmm. It's not serious. It's just a fun and a different chance to express who you are. Yeah. So I'm curious, when when people are criticized for their singing, do you have any sense of whether the people doing the criticizing are singers themselves? One client or, yeah, one client, like her daughter was the one who would always tell her she's a terrible singer and her daughter was a singer, but her daughter also doesn't sing much very more and like won't sing at home, Mm -hmm. which I totally understand um, and is very precious about it. And in those kind of, and that does happen a lot where it is kind of, I think sometimes like when someone is very free about something that you are very scared about, you're more likely to kind of turn on them if it's somebody Mm -hmm. that's close to you. And again, this daughter wasn't like berating her mother, Mm -hmm. you know, like (laughs) going crazy about it, but still was openly pretty rude. Um, So that happens. A lot of times it's just who I would say for the most part, though, it is people who I don't know. It's it's usually not necessarily singers because it isn't like, oh, I'm a singer. I'm hearing all these things Mm -hmm. that the average person wouldn't hear. And like I'm critiquing this stuff. No, it's not coming from that. It's just like gross. You're being loud and being free and it's annoying me. And sure, there are some people in the world that do have pretty terrible voices. I won't lie. Mm but. I'm just like, I've never seen somebody when they really sing, and I've seen because kind of taught musical improv, I've seen all kinds of levels of singers. And when someone is really singing and really going for it, I might not want to listen to it on the radio, but it is interesting to watch. And at the very least, I admire their commitment to it. And mm-hmm. usually it's very interesting to watch and very captivating. Whereas people being coy or cool or just like, like when people do karaoke and they just laugh the whole time because they think they're so funny or they're just like half-assing a song. Mm-hmm. I hate that. You could be the worst person in the world. And as long as you treat it like you are singing to a stadium full of people, I will listen to you no matter what you sound like. And so, so yeah, it comes from all kinds of places. And it usually comes from family and friends. 
sadly. <laughs> well, and that's why I wondered because, it, you know, I keep thinking uh, Brene Brown's Netflix special I just watched the other night. So I keep thinking uh-huh. about her with the Teddy Roosevelt quote about, you know, if you're not in the arena, then basically yeah. buzz off. And and that's kind of why I wondered because, and, and, and as you were answering, I was thinking, so these are people who don't have the courage to get up and do this. And they're criticizing yeah. somebody else for getting up and doing it. And is that because they are just a part of the criticism culture that we seem to have now? Or is it that they're jealous because they don't have the courage to get up and do it or are embarrassed on their behalf because they would be embarrassed if they got up and sang? You know, it's kind of an interesting question and I doubt we can actually know, but yeah, because sometimes it might come from like, oh, I don't want this person to be embarrassed. So like, Mm -hmm. I'll tell them this. And I think also a lot of times these comments are totally like, um, they're not meant to be hurtful. It's like, oh, girl, oh, my God, quit. Like, oh, my God, shut your mouth. You know, just like very kind of cute, catty stuff like that that's not meant to be hurtful. But then what I've found from a lot of people that I've talked to is that like it really is. It's like it more really hurtful than people think. Mm-hmm. So I think there, most people are just saying it in a way of just kind of being funny and, you know, uh, and not trying anything, but it does like, it really can get to people. Um, because no matter what you're doing, even if you're singing somebody else's song or singing karaoke and someone tells you to stop singing, whenever someone tells you to stop talking, stop singing, shut up, you cannot react to that in a positive way. (laughs) There's something just so visceral about like, I Mm -hmm. can't even use my voice. You're telling me to silence myself. Even if it's at karaoke, or I'm singing along <laughs> in the car. Mm-hmm. It's, there's like a visceral, visceral reaction to that that I think the people making those comments aren't even trying. They don't even realize. Yeah. Yeah. But it is is such a vulnerable thing to get up and sing in front of people. And I think people who don't do that don't necessarily understand how vulnerable that is. They either don't understand or they do know how vulnerable it is and kind of can't deal with can't it. with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, other times, yeah, if someone's being, you know, catty about a karaoke thing, they're just being, being a funny jerk. But when it's your friend and you're saying that there's, there is either a bit of envy or kind of, uh, or yeah, just that this is too, this is too much. (laughs) Yeah, I think. So what do you recommend for people who are trying to face down that kind of criticism or just have serious stage fright issues in general, not even asking for a friend? I'm totally curious for myself as much as anybody else. (laughs) Of course. Well, some of it is like you have to, you have to become comfortable with your own voice and that doesn't mean you have to love it. Doesn't mean you have to think you are the best. Um, It just means you have to be okay. So that that first voice in your head that says you are terrible at least goes away. Um, so, so just singing more and like singing acapella or singing not with the radio, something where you actually hear your own voice can be helpful and just getting to know what you actually sound like and looking for the things that you like about it. Um, and again, you don't have to think you're the greatest in the world. You just shouldn't also think you're the worst because mm-hmm. you aren't. Um, and then for stage fright stuff, I think there's a couple pretty easy things you can do to help a little bit. And that can be for singing or for speaking in public. Um, so one is breathe, which is the most annoying advice ever, but it does help a lot. So just taking a deep breath before you start singing or before you start your speech, it helps a lot because it physically relaxes your body and it, and it will help your voice sound better. So the more you feel, um, a good thing to go by is if you feel your shoulders getting really tight, a lot of times that means there's tension everywhere and you're kind of holding your breath. So when you feel your shoulders get tight during a song or during a speech, take a deep breath and then continue and that will you will feel a bit of release from that. And then also I would say is to give yourself, uh, give yourself eye lines. So if you are singing a song, it's tempting to either try to look everybody in the eye as you sing, and that's horrible because you'll manage to find the one person that's like on their phone mm. or just has a bad look on their face because like they had a bad day, but it looks like they hate you. 
You will <laughs> always find that person through. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if like even Beyonce, like in a huge stadium, always manages to find the one person that's on their phone. Um, but so don't look at people in the eye. The other thing you try to do, people end up doing is looking at the ceiling or looking at the floor. And that immediately makes you look like you were scared Mm -hmm. and uncomfortable. And then people get uncomfortable for you. So I always say to like pick three points that are, if you're on a stage and you're elevated, then just right where your eye is level, just where your chin level, just pick three points. Often one of them can be an exit sign on the wall. (laughs) There's lots of clocks that are usually about there. Um, Pick three points, and then if you are really scared, just alternate where you look between the three points because it makes you look like you're not a frozen deer in the headlights. You are, they're like, oh, she worked the whole room. If you're at the same level as everybody else, like you're speaking just standing on the floor, then pick points that are like looking at somebody's forehead. So it looks like you're making eye contact with the room, but you're not actually looking them in the eye. You get to project your own audience. And so they still feel connected to you, but you don't have to make the kind of overly close connection of just Mm -hmm. staring down strangers in the eyeball as you sing. So I think those two things are the biggest for me of they help you feel actually relaxed. They make you look a little more confident, which then as it's even going along, helps you feel a little more confident. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This has Yay. been a really cool conversation and oh, good. I think glad. we got a lot to learn out of it. So oh, good. I hope so. That's it for this week. My thanks to Amber Petty and to you for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.